Now, I want to start with this thought. Have you ever thought what it would be like if adults acted like kids? Now, I know you're probably thinking, a lot of times we do act like kids. Uh, Sometimes I think uh, adults are just bigger versions of kids with more responsibilities. But what would it be like if we really acted like kids? You know, when, when our kids were little, remember they were two years old, sitting in the high chair, and we would feed them that baby food, and they would have it all over their face, maybe one tooth in their head, a little smile. It was cute. It's cute when you're two. It's not cute when you're 20, right? Or, you know, conversation with a five-year-old sometimes goes like this. They might ask you, what is your second favorite dinosaur? That's a great question. But it's not good dinner conversation with adult friends. Um, Or sometimes, we've got a five-year-old in the Fultz household. Sometimes in the middle of the night, she'll she'll come. I feel a tiny tug on my, my sleeve, and she'll say, Dad, can I get in bed with you? That's great. I don't let her, but it's still sweet. That'd be a much different story if we were at youth camp and Trevor, our youth pastor, in the middle of the night, he comes and tugs on my sleeve and he says, Josh, I'm scared. Trevor, go get back in your own bed. (laughs) Or can you imagine meeting an adult and the first thing they lead with is, hey, watch how fast I can run. Uh, It would be strange. Now, we expect, rightly so, that as people grow physically, that they mature as well. You know, as much as I love or have loved, my my son is almost taller than I am, wears a size 13 shoe, surpassed me there too. As much as I've loved my kids being little, and there's moments where I tell my wife, oh man, I wish they could just stay small forever. In reality, I don't. Because I want them to grow and I want to become the people that God has, has designed them to be. And I want them to mature and I want them to go out the door and go to school or whatever vocation God calls them into. And I want them to be amazing ambassadors for Christ. I want them to grow mature, and it should be the same for Christians. Now, becoming a Christian is a miracle of a moment. It's that day, that point in time in history, when you submit to Christ, when you give him your life, when you repent of your sins, when you trust in the the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. But from that point onward, there should be this process where we grow up in our faith, where we mature. And so today, as we continue our journey through the book of Philippians, um, today we'll get through chapter 1, verse 9. I mean, we are moving along at an amazing clip here together, church, nine verses in three weeks. Um, we're going to discuss this idea of growing up in our faith, some, some essentials of growing up in our faith. Paul discusses this frequently in his letters. In fact, part of the purpose, the reason that we have Scripture is to instruct us in in all righteousness. That is, we read God's Word, it tells us how to become mature believers. And this is what I've learned. Um, Growing up is not always easy. In fact, it's filled with, with challenges, and there's moments where it's unpleasant, and there's times where you wrestle with things in life, and you have questions about life and God and, and your understanding of what God desires for you. But it requires, growing up requires that we, that we change. I would say, however, that it's difficult to be happy, truly happy, if we're not growing To stay in a place of stagnation where nothing is coming in and nothing's going out and life is just stagnant. That's not a joyous life. And that's what we've said the theme in Philippians is. Kind of weaves everything together is joy. And so last week, 
Uh, we began by looking at sort of at the Apostle Paul's introduction, and we started off, he gave his introduction, we looked at the founding of the Philippian church, and then Paul starts to pray this prayer in writing for the Philippian believers. And we looked last week where Paul, in his prayer, sort of shared some essentials for happiness. Well, today, we're going to continue on in Paul's prayer for the Philippians, and Paul sort of points us to, in his prayer, some essentials to grow spiritually. Now this is the interesting thing to me about the Apostle Paul's writing. In all of his letters, you'll never see him, as he writes a letter to a church, you'll never see a prayer where he talks about, you know what, I hope you grow numerically. I hope the church just burst out the seams numerically. He doesn't write about, um, you know, I hope the offering plates are full. But what Paul does write about in his letter is spiritual maturity. And I think there's a thought behind that. As we grow spiritually, it leads to us growing numerically because we share our faith with other people and we pull people into this body because we believe we've got a good thing going here. It leads to us growing financially because as we mature spiritually, we see that God calls us to give. Um, we, we grow ministerially as we give our service and as we um, volunteer and as we're meshed into the church. So this morning, let's take a look at the Apostle Paul's prayer. We're going to jump in. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to resume in verse 9. We're only going to look at three verses, 9, 10, and 11. Let's read them, and then we'll discuss them and kind of parse them out and see how it applies uh, personally to us. So Paul says, continuing in his prayer, he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So in this prayer, Paul sort of discusses some essentials if we're going to grow up as Christians. And you'll notice the first thing that he mentions, it is my prayer that your love. He wants them to grow in love. He would desire that we grow in love as well. Now, for the Christian, love is foundational. We are to be a loving people. Love should be the motivation for everything that we do. Look at what he says, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. The idea of love is central if we're going to grow in Christ. Now, there's the scene in the Gospels where this lawyer approaches Jesus, and he says, Jesus, how do I, how do I attain, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And this is the answer, Luke 10, 27. It says, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. But then this lawyer asked Jesus, he says, well, who is my neighbor? Let me ask you this morning, church, who is your neighbor? What, is it, what does this mean? Who should you love? Who is your neighbor? Well, when the lawyer asked this question, who is my neighbor, Jesus responds with the story of the Good Samaritan. You're familiar with this. Where there was this, this Jewish man, and he gets beat up, robbed, and left on the side of the road for dead. And a religious leader passes by, doesn't want to get his hands dirty. Another religious leader passes by, keeps on walking. But then the Samaritan stops. Now, why is that significant? Because the Jews hated the Samaritans. They thought they were well beneath them. But the Samaritan, who the Jews hated, stops and helps this Jewish man. And Jesus' point of the story is that everyone is your neighbor. 
Church, we live in a huge neighborhood where we have many, many neighbors. But so often what we want to do is we want to pick and choose who our neighbors are. We want our neighbor to be the person that's easy to love. We want our neighbor to be the person that looks like us, that agrees with us, that thinks like we do. But I think we desperately need to remember for such a time as this that everyone is our neighbor. The person who gets on your nerves might be me, I don't know. They're your neighbor. The person who hurt you in the past, guess what? They're your neighbor. Joe Biden, Donald Trump, they're both your neighbor. The Muslim, the Jew, the atheist, the wayward Christian, they're your neighbor. The gay guy that lives down the street, he's your neighbor. You don't get to pick and choose your neighbor. But Paul gives us four characteristics in this prayer of, of, of love, of what love should be, that Christians, we should have this growing love in our lives for God and for people. So let's look at those four sort of characteristics of love. First of all, love should be Christ-like. The word Paul uses, he says, I pray that your love would abound more and more. The word there is agape, which is used in a unique sense in Scripture. And the word agape is a different kind of love. You know, our culture, we use love for everything. I love tacos, I love my wife. These two are not equal, right? So, but in Greek culture, they had multiple words for love that really let you sort of drill down into the meaning. And agape is how God loves. It's selfless love. It's the kind of love that comes from God. It comes from the Holy Spirit being active in our lives. Loving selflessly doesn't come natural because what comes natural to me is to want to love me and to make me happy and to focus on my needs but real love is not meritorious God loved me in spite of me Christians let's be known by our Christ-like love but also I want us to think about this as well that our love is a choice agape is a choice because again it's easy to love people that are easy to love I mean that's not a challenge anybody can do that the people that agree with me that think like me that maybe even look like me But true love, godly love, agape love, it's not based on emotions, it's based on a choice. And that's how God is, that he loved us to such a degree that he made a decision that I'm going to die for these people that are totally unworthy. That for such a sinner as me, that Christ came and he died. You know, the Apostle Paul said this, I am the chief of sinners. And as much as I admire and respect Paul, if he's the chief of sinners, I don't know what that says about me. Yet God loved me. And that's the way Scripture says we're to love other people. It is a choice. John 15, 12 through 13, Jesus says this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So it's hard enough that he says, I want you to love one another. But then he throws the curveball in. I want you to love one another like I love you selflessly, so much that I was willing to give my life and die. He says this greater love is no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Love means that we die to ourselves. It's not an easy do, not easy to do. Another thought about love is this. Notice what Paul says in verse 9 that our love should overflow. He says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more and more. I could be obnoxious and more with knowledge and all discernment. That your love may abound. It means that it just overflows and it overflows. That's what a Christian should be like. That's the way we should love. That when people think, oh, their love's about to run out, here comes more. Our love overflows, I'm going to say this in two ways. When we live righteously and when we serve 
others. And here's what I want you to think about. How does our love overflow when we live righteously? Because often people will say this, well, you know what, my sins and my choices, they're exactly that. They're my sins and they're my choices. And what I do only affects me and it doesn't hurt anybody else. That is such a mistruth. Because when I live in a way that's unrighteous, when I do things the way that God says not to do things, it harms me, it harms my wife, it harms my kids, it harms my relationships, it harms this church body, because I'm out of sync. For our love to truly overflow, it means that we live righteous lifestyles. But it also means that we serve other people. It means that our love spills out in service for others. If Christ's love has drenched us, it should overflow into the lives of other people. Let me read again a story out of the Gospels, Matthew 22, 36-40. Uh, it says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? A man approaches Jesus. And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. We're not going to talk about it, but that's important too. Verse 38. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that our greatest ethic as Christians is to love God and to love people. Let me be honest with you, church. I feel like American Christianity, and I use the term American because sometimes we kind of get it out of sync with what true Christianity is. I think as Americans, we can do so much better at loving our neighbors. Now, notice what he says at the end of verse 9. Forethought about love is our love is rooted in knowledge. This is important too. He says in verse 9, And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. It overflows. But he says, with all knowledge and discernment. Now, knowledge here means knowing what God's word says. And it means living it out. So loving people doesn't mean that you approve or endorse their sin. It doesn't mean that when they're living contrary to Scripture, you just say, hey, you be you, you do you, I'm going to applaud you all the way. No, instead, it means that we tell people the truth. And our society is so mixed up here because we've gotten to the place where if you tell somebody the truth, it automatically means that you hate them or you don't care about them. No, no, no. The reason I tell my kids the truth is because I love them. If I didn't love them, I'd lie to them all day long. You know what? Let's suppose one thinks you've seen shows, talent shows like American Idol or uh, The Voice or whatever, where somebody gets up there and they sound like a cat being thrown off the top of the Empire State Building. The reason they're there is because their mom and dad didn't tell them the truth. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And so we do people no favors when we lie to them. It means we tell people the truth. But here's the, here's the big thing, though, church. The reason we tell people the truth is because we love them. Not because we're right, which I think we are. Not because I want to win the argument. But because we love the person. And let me be honest, I can do poorly here sometimes. Because sometimes, I mean, I love the truth. And sometimes when I see people pushing up against it, I want them to know they're wrong. And Scripture says that's not the motivation. The motivation is we love them, and that's why we tell them the truth. If it's for any other reason, it's for not. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, um, if, if we don't have love, we sound like tinkling cymbals or clanging brass. He says, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these. Faith and hope are pretty big deals, but he says the greatest of these is love. 
We love with knowledge and discernment. Let me remind you that our battle is not with flesh and blood, Scripture says. That's with the forces of darkness. And so the person that we're arguing with is not our enemy. So we're to love them and be reminded that there are forces at work that seek to blind. So what else does Paul say? What else does he pray for the Philippians? That they would grow, that we would grow. Look at verse 10. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent. Our second thought here, if we're going to grow up in Christ, is that there should be excellence. Now there's some sequence here to Paul's writing. He lays the, love is the foundation that incorporates truth and discernment, and that leads to excellence, which is living a biblical lifestyle. Look at verses 9 and 10 squished together. He says, And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. I pray that your love abounds. Why is that, Paul? So that you may approve what is excellent. Now, the word approve here was used in metallurgy, and it was used to test the genuineness of coins and precious metals. What's Paul saying? He's saying that all true believers will test, examine, and investigate the best possible way to please the Lord. Paul is literally saying that you might approve of the things that really matter. A Christian who loves God will want to please God. Same way, I love my wife, I want to see my wife happy. I want to do my best to please her. An essential to grow in our faith is that we desire to please the Lord, and that changes the way that we live. Jesus said this in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll do what I tell you to do. Now, it'll probably be several weeks, maybe months before we get here, but later in Philippians, Paul writes in Philippians 4, 8. I just couldn't help but bring this out. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, holy, commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything praiseworthy, Paul says, think about these things. God desires that we live with excellence. Now, let me ask you, is there anything in your life right now that is distracting you from the excellent things? You know, it's so easy to be distracted by the by, by things that don't matter. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's the news or politics. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's just the daily grind of life. But what is robbing you and stealing your attention and devotion to the excellent things? If we don't seek out God's will, if, if, if what's important to God is not important to us, how can we expect to grow? So to love God is to love his word and those excellent things. Let's continue on. Look at the rest of verse 10. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now you see this flow of thought. Paul says, love and order that you may approve of what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. Pure and blameless. Now we could say it this way. Growing up in our faith means that we live with integrity. Means that we live with integrity. Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What does it mean to be pure? Well, the word here literally means this. It means to be tested by the light. Now, at the time Paul's writing this, the ancient world, often they would create, pot, create pottery. And when that was fired, it would, it would have, sometimes have cracks in it. And so what the, the, the shady, sort of seedy merchants would do is they would fill those cracks with wax. They would paint it, and it looks like it's perfect. So you get it home and you put hot liquid in it and it melts out the wax and it pours through the cracks. 
So what people would do, they got wise to it, they would hold those vessels up to the light and you could see just barely where the cracks were. You know, as Christians, our lives are to be held up to the light of God's word. And here's what I know. Whenever I, my, my life is exposed to the light of Christ, it exposes my fissures and my cracks and all of my defects. It lays me bare before the Lord. Now, sometimes what we want to do as Christians is we want to gloss over those cracks in our vessel. We want to gloss over the sins and the mistakes and the shortcomings, and we want to make it all look pretty, and we don't want anybody else to see that we're broken. Here's what people know. They already know you're broken. This is the amazing thing, that God will take our brokenness, and he will mend it, and he will use us if we will so let him. He says in verse 10, that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Blameless. What does that mean? It means without guilt. It means not causing other people to stumble. If I could have a word attached to me at the end of my life, I would love for people to say, Josh was still a sinner, but he lived a blameless lifestyle. He lived according to what Christ said and he did his best not to cause other people to stumble. That's what I want said about me. I'll never be perfect, but I can strive to live a blameless life, a life where I don't have secrets. Let me be honest with you. There's not an aspect of my life that someone does not know about. And let me tell you what, that is so incredibly freeing. To not have to keep secrets. We tell our kids, secrets make you sick. If there's secrets, there's going to be lies. We don't want you to have lies or secrets in your life. A life that's blameless doesn't make it easy for other people to stumble. It means we live with an example because here's what I know is all the time people are watching how you live your life you may not know it but they're watching and let me tell you who's watching more than anybody else parents and that's these little people or maybe they're these big people that you're bringing up in your homes and you know what we can do we can teach our kids to say the right things we can modify their behavior in public they may look like angels but everything we do behind closed doors our kids are seeing and they're watching, and it is shaping the trajectory of their life. Paul says we're to live blameless lives. Look at verse 10. He says, so that you may approve of what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. A day is approaching when Christ will return, and we are to live with integrity, pure and blameless, all the way up to that day. Notice what else Paul prays for the Philippians. Verse 11. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As we love, we strive for excellence in the things that matter. We grow with integrity and it flows into good works in our lives. This is the outworking of what's going on inside. Now, we we don't do good works to be approved by God. We do good works because we are approved by God because we want to love him the same way that he loves us. Good works flow out more and more of the believer. Last thought as we close out, look at verse 11. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. To grow up in the Christian faith, we must desire to give God all glory. Now let me ask you this. Why are you here? Why were you made? You know, you think about it. Am I created? This is how our culture thinks about it. Was I created to be born to learn some things, to get a good education so I can get a good job, to make some money so I can save up for retirement, enjoy retirement for a few years, and then die. Is that the reason I was made? Surely there's more to life 
than just that trajectory. I think this. You were made, I was made, to give God glory and to enjoy Him forever. I get to serve an amazing God. And I get to be, Scripture says that we, be, we can become friends with God. And that we can enjoy his presence in our lives for all of eternity. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We have a purpose to serve God, give him glory, enjoy his presence. So church, as we close, I want to ask you, where are you at this morning? Are we growing up in Christ? As you look back to the day you came to know Christ... Do you see this progressive growth? Now, sometimes it's two steps forward and one step backwards. I get that. Maybe sometimes it's one step forward and two steps backward. But we should be able to look back and see growth. But you know what? Sometimes we, we grow at different rates. And largely, it's because sometimes we're intentional and sometimes we're not. So maybe God is saying to you this morning, you know what, Christian? It's time to, it's time to grow up. The Apostle Paul says that it all begins with love, that if we're not rooted and love for God and love for other people, it doesn't matter what you do, you're not going to grow in your faith. Love, however, leads us to wanting what is excellent, the best things. That is to say, we're here for a short time. Let's focus and pay attention to what matters into eternity. He says that leads us to living with integrity, that we could be pure when we're held up to the light, blameless, not causing others to stumble. Leads to us doing good works, and we do it all for the glory of God. And so maybe you're here this morning, church, and you realize, you know what? My growth arc, instead of being an arc, it's just more of a flat line. I can barely see it. Maybe God is calling you this morning to say, you know what? It's time that I grow up. It's time that I I place the emphasis on the disciplines that matter, reading my Bible, um, engaging in Scripture, talking to the Lord, being involved in my church, seeking God's will, for my life. This is the amazing thing. As we saw this morning, everybody has a story. And God writes our story and he weaves our stories together. But you're here to serve him, to glorify him, and to enjoy his presence. And this is what I've learned. The closer I get to God, the sweeter and better my life is, no matter what comes my way. And here's what I know. God is a forgiving God, and he's a loving God. And whenever we come to him and say, God, I want to do better, would you help me do better? God is always faithful to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and once again for allowing us to be here in your house, God, and for your word and for the blessings of your word, that we can know your truths. Lord, we're thankful that you love us in such a way that you love us, not based on our merit, but based on your goodness. Lord, help us to love people the way that you love. God, help us to focus on excellent things and not become distracted with things that really just have no lasting significance. Help us to love our families, our spouse, our kids, and to model a lifestyle before our children that is pure and blameless because they're watching everything we do. Help us to shape their hearts. Help us to live our lives the way that we pray and want them to live theirs. Lord, help us to serve you, to do good works that you've called us to. Lord, we love you and we praise you. All these things we pray in your name. Amen.